Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week marks the beginning of the end of the sixth season and the tenure of the second Doctor in The War Games. As this is a 10-part story, we will be splitting the discussion over two weeks. This week we will be discussing episodes 1 through 5, giving our thoughts on the Doctor, the companions and the villains, and sharing our thoughts on the story so far. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on the story, so to join the discussion you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Now though, Pinton, why don't you take us through episodes 1 through 5? Yes, eat all of our shirts. <laughs> I'll have out, edited out my fuck up, so that's going to make no sense. No, leave it in because Shane will get a good laugh out of that. <laughs> leave in just that with my after editing out my fuck up. Uh, <laughs> episode one. The TARDIS lands in a muddy valley with the doctor stationed that it looks like Earth, but he isn't quite so sure. He leads Jamie and Zoe up a nearby hill, and they spot a coil of barbed wire at the top. On the ground near the wire, the Doctor spots a 20th century British Army helmet, and he sadly tells his companions that they have apparently arrived at the, one of the most terrible times in Earth's history. Suddenly, an artillery barrage starts to land around them, forcing them to duck for cover behind a nearby bomb crater, and a machine gun fire fills the air. A few moments later, the barrage ends, and they find themselves staring at a very chipper woman in a circular World War I British military medic uniform. She seems perplexed at their presence in the area, which she describes as between the lines. She tells them that she's en route to Ypres, but before she can say anything else, they are accosted by two German soldiers wearing gas masks. One of them leads the travellers into the back of the medic's nearby field ambulance, whilst the others force the medics into the driver's seat and instructs her to leave. A few moments later, they are stopped by a British officer and two of his men, who take the German soldier prisoner. The medic tells them about the other soldier in the back, but they find that Jamie has already disarmed him. The Germans are put into the back and the officer joins the medic in the front, instructing her to return to their base with strangers. The approach of the ambulance is reported to the base commander, who orders that it be given covering fire. The officer identifies himself as Lieutenant Carstairs and reports the events that occurred out in No Man's Land. Outside, the doctor has explained to his companions the nature of trench warfare and the purpose of the supposed war to end all wars, when he notices that they aren't being watched. He tells the others that they should make a break for it, but he is stopped by machine gun fire from the opposing trench. A sergeant then brings him to the base commander, whose name is Major Barrington. At first he assumes Jamie to be a deserter from one of the Highland regiments, due to his clothing, but then relents when he objects and turns his attention to Zoe, saying that the battlefield is no place for a woman. Zoe points out the presence of the female medic, whose name is Lady Jennifer Buckingham, but he says that she is a member of the WBR, Women's Volunteer Reserve, and is therefore allowed to be on the battlefield. The doctor requests to be allowed to leave, but the sergeant says that they were caught trying to leave already in the direction of the German lines. Thinking that they are spies, Barrington calls through to his superior, General Smythe, who tells Barrington to send him to the field headquarters. Smythe then tells his adjutant that he's retired to his private quarters for a rest, but once he is inside, he goes to a secret panel behind the painting. A sergeant major enters with a cup of tea, and Smythe angrily tells him to get out before returning to the secret panel, which houses a futuristic video communication device. He calls through to request more specimens for the 1917 zone. Back at the trench, Jamie refuses to be sent anywhere, but the guards are called and the doctor tells him to stand down. They are then escorted away and Lady Jennifer asks Barrington for some men to help her recover her own ambulance and he goes to gather a squad. After he goes, she comments to Carsters that the travellers don't seem like spies, but he says the best ones never do. He then says that he doesn't envy sending them to Smythe, whose nickname among the rank at file is The Butcher. The travellers are marched into the HQ, which is an opulent chateau in the countryside. 
The adjutant goes to inform Smythe, but finds him gone from his room, and so he orders him to be taken instead to the cells in the basement. Back in the trenches, Lady Jennifer and Carstairs are sharing a cup of tea whilst getting to know each other. As they question each other, they realise that they can't remember how long they had been stationed in the area, or the details about their experiences there, which Carstairs wants the shell shock. Barrington arrives just as a call comes through requesting their presence at the HQ for questioning about the prisoners. In the cells, the doctor says that everything will be okay once they speak to the general, who he says is bound to be a very reasonable man. Smite returns from his room and is greeted by the adjutant, Captain Ransom, who tells him about trying to find him earlier. Smite puts on a pair of glasses and tells Ransom that he was asleep and that Ransom didn't want to disturb him, which the captain repeats. Ransom gives him the details about the prisoners just as the sergeant major announces the arrival of Barrington and the others. Smite then uses his glasses to convince Barrington that he knows Ransom from their days at school together. A short while later, the prisoners are marched into the drawing room, where they are subjected to a court-martial where Jamie is accused of being a deserter and the Doctor and Zoe of being spies. The floor is given to the Doctor to present their defence, but Smite cuts across any of the defence witnesses he calls upon. He then sends them away so he can determine their sentence with the others. Ransom and Barrington question their guilt, but Smite uses his glasses and they instead say that their guilt is beyond question. The prisoners are marched back in and are all found guilty. Jamie is sentenced to a further military court-martial for desertion, and Zoe to 10 years in prison for treason, and the doctor to death for spying. The doctor objects and calls for the court a mockery before he is told that he will be executed at dawn. Jamie is taken away to a military prison, and the orders are ordered back to the cells. Lady Jennifer, however, asks Ransom to let Zoe stay in the comfort of the drawing room, and offers to watch her herself. Zoe objects to being separated from the doctor, but he tells her that it would be alright before giving her a fond kiss goodbye on her head. The doctor is brought back to his cell, and the sergeant major says that he will get him a last meal. Before he goes, the doctor asks him how long he has been at the front, and the sergeant major finds that, like Carstairs and Lady Jennifer, he can't exactly remember. Later that night, Zoe sneaks into Smite's room to find the keys to the doctor's cell and finds the room empty. Her search reveals the video screen behind the hidden panel before she eventually finds the keys. She releases the doctor who says they need to go find Jamie, but they are stopped by Ransom at a firing squad. The doctor is then brought out into the courtyard where he is tied to a stake and Ransom gives the order to fire. The doctor recoils as the guns go off. Episode 2 The doctor relaxes when he realises that he hasn't been shot and he sees that one of the firing squad has been wounded. They are being fired at by an unseen assailant from a barn at the far end of the courtyard and then take a defensive positions in order to return fire. Zoe dashes forward and releases the doctor and both of them flee the courtyard. Inside the HQ, Smite is at the video screen and says that he is en route to the conference. Suddenly, a sound similar to the one that TARDIS makes when it materialises fills the air, and a strange machine appears in the room. Just as he is about to enter, Ransom arrives to report the prisoner's escape, and he stares dumbfounded at the machine. Smite uses his glasses to convince Ransom that he saw nothing, and to tell anyone that asks that he is away at an important meeting. In his jail cell, Jamie is calling for breakfast when a British red coat is thrown into the cell. Jamie reassures his once former adversary that he means him no harm and asks how he got there. Like the other soldiers, he can't seem to remember anything except that he believes the year to be 1745. He tells Jamie that he was fighting the Highlands when he encountered a strange mist. After walking through it, he found himself in the same no man's land in the, that the Tarns arrived in and was taken captive by the British soldiers. Jamie tries to get him to help in an escape attempt, but he recoils, saying that he doesn't trust the Highlander. Jamie then advances on him, wielding a piece of wood. Outside the cell, the guards hear the commotion and go in to break up the fight, but it is actually a ruse as Jamie and the Redcoat knock out the guards and then rush outside. At the HQ, Ransom explains the disappearance of the prisoners to Carstairs and Lady Jennifer. 
He tells Carsters to take a team to search the grounds of the HQ and the surrounding area whilst he takes one towards the German lines. He asks Kay Jennifer to stay behind to man the telephone in case reports come in and to inform Smite when he returns. Before he leaves, Lady Jennifer confides in Carstairs that she hopes the travellers manage to escape, and he echoes the sentiment. Carstairs returns a short while later, having found no trace of the travellers. Lady Jennifer then asks him if he found the trial to be very strange, and tells him that she has started to remember things from before. She tells him about driving her ambulance and encountering a strange mist, and that the next thing she remembers is being at a field dressing station. Carstairs says that it must be a type of weaponized gas that affects the mind, but he seems unsure of this as he says it. Outside the military prison, the Doctor and Zoe are observing the area through a telescope. They realise the biggest obstacle they will face will be the guards at the entrance, and they retreat to come up with a plan. They see a car coming down the road leading into the prison and flag the driver down, whereby the Doctor starts to berate him for being late and collecting them. The Doctor orders him to drive him to the prison, which the confused young soldier does. The arrival is called through to the prison commandant, but he tells him to wait while he has his tea. However, the Doctor barges in with Zoe, claiming to be a prison inspector sent from the war office. The stunned commandant asks for his identification papers, but the doctor acts even angrier at this and demands to be given the tour of the prison immediately to make up for the time that was wasted. The flustered commandant shows him the prison blueprints detailing all the defences, and he then presents the prisoner records when the doctor asks for them. The doctor asks to be allowed to speak to Jamie. Before the commandant can arrange it, he gets a call alerting him to Jamie and the Redcoat's escape. He is told that the Redcoat was wounded and Jamie was apprehended again, and the doctor demands that Jamie be brought in for questioning. Once Jamie arrives, the doctor continually cuts across him as it takes Jamie a few moments to go along with the ruse. The commandant, who has grown suspicious of the doctor and his continual refusal to show his identity papers, goes to call the HQ but is knocked unconscious by a vase-wielding Zoe. They then head for the door only to be greeted by Ransom and a pair of guards. Ransom returns to the HQ and interrupts Carstairs and Lady Jennifer as they are discussing Smythe's behaviour during the trial. He tells them about the events at the prison, expressing some admiration for the doctor's bravado. Carstairs speaks to him about the irregular nature of the trial, but Ransom seems to be oblivious to any strangeness to it. After he leaves, Carstairs asks Lady Jennifer to keep Ransom distracted if he returns whilst he goes to speak with the prisoners, and he interrupts them as they are discussing their various anachronisms that they have encountered. Ransom returns, and Lady Jennifer informs him that she has called off the pursuit of the prisoners as per his orders. He then says that he is going to make sure the prisoners are secure, but Lady Jennifer distracts him by asking about Smythe's strange behaviour and the stress that he himself must be under fulfilling his duties. She then receives a call from Carstairs, who tells her to get rid of Ransom so he can investigate the room for the video screen that Zoe told him about. She tells Ransom that it was Smythe on the call, who's requested that Ransom join him at the furthest observation post at the front line. Moments after he leaves, Carstairs leads the prisoners up to join Lady Jennifer, and they all go out to check Smythe's room. However, Carstairs and Lady Jennifer say they can't see anything, but the doctor forces them to concentrate, and they finally perceive the video communication device. Unfortunately, the screen is on, and they are observed by Smythe, who is in the strange control room. The doctor switches off the screen, and he then says that they all need to leave urgently, with Lady Jennifer going to prepare the ambulance. Jamie asks if they are going to head back to the TARDIS, but the doctor says they need to find out what's going on. Before they leave, they run into Ransom, who asks Carstairs where they are going. Carstairs says that Smite wants the prisoners to be brought to the conference meeting, and Ransom lets him go but demands that Lady Jennifer be sent to him for questioning. Once they are outside, they pile into the ambulance and speed off. Smite returns in his machine and asks Ransom where the prisoners are. He berates him for being gullible when he was told what Carstairs had said. Smite orders him to send out an alert for the ambulance, and once it is found, he orders an artillery barrage to be laid down in the area that will be next entering. 
Ransomman initially objects to this, but Smite uses his glasses to make him obey. The ambulance manages to survive the barrage by driving through a bank of mist that Lady Jennifer seems unable to further go into, forcing the doctor to take the wheel. They emerge from the mist into a completely serene valley with no signs of the battlefield that they had only been in moments before. The doctor says that it might have been some sort of force field, and he and Jamie and Zoe climb a nearby hill to get their bearings. At the top of it, though, they see a sentry of Roman legionnaires and a chariot bearing down on them. They rush down the hill and tell Lady Jennifer to start the ambulance, and Carstairs desperately cranks the motor to get it started again. Episode 3 Carstairs manages to get the ambulance started, and Lady Jennifer throws it into reverse, and they disappear again into the mist, leaving the legionnaires stunned. They arrive back at the battlefield in 1917, and they all go into the back to discuss what had just happened. The Doctor theorises that the mist that they went through acts as a barrier between the different time zones. He says that in order to navigate their way around, they will need to return to Smite's office at the HQ, with Carstairs acting as if he had recaptured them. They arrive back at the HQ, and Ransom begins to berate Carstairs, but stops when he points a gun at him, allowing Jamie to disarm him. The Doctor begins looking for a map for the various time zones, but finds nothing in the outer office, and goes searching in Smite's bedroom. He finds a safe, and Carstairs says that without a key, it would be impossible to break into it, and goes to look for some explosives to use. While he is gone, the Doctor says he will try to crack the combination, and Jamie wonders if he will use a tuning fork as he did in their previous adventure. Carstairs returns with a hand grenade, but the Doctor says that they will need to direct the force of the explosion, and so he dismantles the grenade to pack the explosive component into the safe lock and uses the wick of a candle to increase the fuse time. As they are doing this, the bound Ransom manages to work the gag from his mouth and calls for help, but Carstairs manages to shut him up again. As Carstairs goes to head back into the office, a guard captain arrives with Lady Jennifer and Zoe, having captured them because of the alert for the escaped prisoners. Carstairs tries to get him to leave, saying that he will take care of them until Ransom returns. But just as he finally manages to get the guard captain to leave, the safe blows and he rushes in to investigate it. Carstairs and Jamie apprehend him and tie him up beside Ransom, whilst the doctor and Zoe go over the map he found in the safe. The map shows a wide expanse of various different time zones of the American, Mexican and English Civil Wars, the Boer War, the Crimean War, the Russo-Japanese War, the Thirty Years' War, and the Peloponnesian War. At the centre of the map is an unmarked zone which the Doctor says that they need to go to. The group make their way across no man's land in the ambulance, with Carstairs pretending to be wounded, but they are captured by a German patrol and brought back to their trench. Jamie and Zoe are left outside, where they experience the horrors of trench warfare, whilst the Doctor is taken inside for questioning. After some evasive answering, the German lieutenant demands that the doctor tell him the truth, and so he does, including Jamie and Zoe's origins. The young duo are brought in to corroborate the doctor's story, but the lieutenant thinks that they are mad. The doctor then shows him his sonic screwdriver and demonstrates it by unscrewing and rescrewing the pin on the handle of the lieutenant's service revolver, amazing the young soldier. The lieutenant's superior, Captain von Weich, arrives and demands to know what is going on. The lieutenant fills him in, and von Weich then brings him into his private quarters. Once inside, he puts on a monocle and tells the lieutenant that they are spies and are to be shot. The lieutenant goes to repeat this to the travellers, and after he leaves, Von Weich goes to a nearby portrait and opens it to reveal a video communicator similar to Smite's. He reports the presence of the travellers to his superiors. Outside, the doctor tries to make the lieutenant believe that they are not spies and shows him his sonic screwdriver again. This jogs the young officer's memory, but the doctor then throws the gun to Jamie and they demand to be brought back to the ambulance. In a futuristic control room, Smite and several guards and technicians are greet their superior, who is known as the War Chief, who tells them that the Warlord is pleased with their progress. Smite tells him that he has ordered the prisoners to be executed, but when he reveals that they claim to be time travellers, the War Chief orders them to be brought to him for question. 
Van Wyck calls and says that they've escaped, and the war chief orders them to be recaptured. The ambulances make its way through the various zones in an effort to reach the central area when a tree falls on the road, stopping their advance. As they attempt to move it, they are ambushed by a squad of Confederate soldiers, and Carstairs manages to kill or incapacitate them whilst the others clear the tree. Jamie takes on one of the soldiers that tries to stop them, and they manage to get the tree off the road. However, reinforcements arrive, and Carstairs tells them to leave whilst he covers their escape. Further down the road, they run out of petrol, and Lady Jennifer takes the ambulance off the road into the woods to avoid a Confederate cavalry patrol. The group abandon the ambulance and continue on through the woods. Back in the control room, Smite and Von Weich are discussing their tactics that they intend to use against each other's forces when the war chief enters with an update on the ambush. He says that Carstairs was captured and that he will be reprocessed. Meanwhile, the travellers enter a barn to rest for the night when they hear the arrival sound of a travel machine. They take cover and watch as a platoon of Confederate soldiers disembark from it. Zoe comments that it seems to be similar to the TARDIS and the doctor goes inside to investigate it. Suddenly, the sound of gunfire fills the air and Zoe goes in to fetch the doctor whilst Jamie goes to bring back Lady Jennifer, who went to see where the gunfire was coming from. Suddenly, the machine dematerializes, leaving Jamie and Lady Jennifer behind. Episode 4 Inside the machine, Zoe's comments about it being like the TARDIS prove to be true, as the inside is much larger. She asks who else could this type of technology, and the doctor absentmindedly says he thinks he knows, but then wanders off down one of the corridors. Zoe notices a shelf containing visors similar to the ones worn by the technicians in the control room, and wonders what they are, but the doctor doesn't hear her as he continues on down the corridor. He then calls her to him, and she is greeted by the sight of dozens of World War I-era German soldiers and Roman legionnaires frozen in place. Zoe wonders why soldiers from different time periods are being assembled, but before the doctor can answer, the ship starts to land. They take over as a century of Roman legionnaires leave. Zoe suggests that they should leave, but the doctor says that he would only leave them stranded in the middle of another war zone. Instead, he says that they should stay in the machine until it returns to its base, and the matter is then settled when the ship takes off again. Back at the barn, a squad of Union soldiers rush in and apprehend Jamie and Lady Jennifer. The sergeant asks who they are, and one of the soldiers accuses them of being Confederate spies due to their accents. They are bound and put into a corner whilst the soldiers take a brief rest, but it is interrupted when the barn is suddenly attacked. Jamie and Lady Jennifer try to get free by using Jamie's ankle knife, but they stop when the Union soldiers flee the barn and the Confederates enter. The Confederate lieutenant releases them and goes to inform his captain, who is revealed to be Von Weich, and orders them to be tied up again as they are the enemies of the Confederacy. At the command centre, the war chief and the head scientist are discussing the mental reprocessing technology, which is apparently only 95% effective. The scientist thinks that this is an acceptable success rate, but the war chief says that the 5% who have managed to resist are causing disruptions to his plans, and that if it continues, the varying groups could unite to cause even more damage. Von Weich then calls through and informs the war chief of the capture of Jamie and Lady Jennifer. The war chief tells him to continue his search for the doctor and Zoe and bring them all to the base so they can be subjected to reprocessing. Meanwhile, the ship carrying the doctor and Zoe returns to the command center and they exit where they see a technician at a control board whom they initially assume to be being in control. They then hide from a passing guard wearing Crimean War era attire and Zoe notices that both he and the technician are wearing the same visors that she took from the ship. She and the doctor then put on a pair each before making their way to the base. Back at the barn, Lady Jennifer and Jamie try to convince the lieutenant of their innocence, but to no avail. Suddenly, a black Union soldier appears and sets them free, telling them to quietly sneak out through a gap in the barn wall. 
They are spotted though and he tells the duo to run whilst he covers their escape, telling them to make their way north to his camp. He is eventually overrun and Von Weich appears and uses his monocle when the soldier refuses to tell him where they went. However, the soldier is immune to the effects of the monocle, revealing himself to be a member of one of the resistance groups the war chief mentioned. He tries to convince the Confederate soldiers to see past the illusion, but to no avail. Back in the base, the Doctor and Zoe continue their tour of the facility, which seems to be more like a university due to the various lecture halls and dormitories that they found. A mixed squad of soldiers pass them by, but pay them no attention due to the visors that they are wearing. A guard carrying a futuristic laser rifle appears and tells them that they are late for the lecture and ushers them inside. The head scientist is addressing a room full of mixed soldiers who are actually students learning how the reprocessing system works. He tells them about the 5% failure rate in the subjects that they have taken from Earth and how they have formed resistance groups capable of going between the various zones at will. He says as a result of this, he has revamped the processing unit and intends to give them a demonstration and reveals Carstairs is to be his test subject. Upon instruction, Carstairs describes the room around him and spots the doctor who signals for him to not to react. The head scientist then places the reprocessing unit around Carstairs and subjects him to it. A few moments later, Carstairs awakens and it seems to have worked, treating the scientist like a superior officer and being oblivious to the future technology around him. However, he outs the doctor and Zoe as German spies, but the scientist thinks that this is a failure in the reprocessing unit and has a pair of guards take him away. The doctor plays into it and says the scientist didn't properly deprocess Carstairs before submitting him to the new programming. When the scientist says that it wasn't necessary, the doctor then says that it must have been a fault in the machine, but again he denies this and starts to show the doctor how the machine works. Meanwhile, Jamie and Lady Jennifer have gotten separated and Jamie finds himself attacked by a Confederate cavalry officer. Jamie manages to knock him from his horse and he mounts it himself, fleeing as the officers start shooting at him. He eventually comes across Lady Jennifer as she is being apprehended by another cavalry soldier. He manages to knock out the soldier, but before they can get away, they are surrounded by more Confederate troops. They return to the barn where they are put in with the soldier who freed them and he explains about the resistance that he is a part of. Von Weich then comes over and says that he will be questioned about his allies, but suddenly the Baron is attacked by a mixture of Civil War, Boer and Crimean War soldiers. There are casualties on both sides, but eventually the Resistance members manage to eliminate the others and capture Von Weich, who they intend to kill, but Jamie tries to stop them, saying that he needs Von Weich alive. Back in the base, the scientist finishes showing the Doctor the machine and then dismisses the class. Before they can leave, the War Chief arrives and asks for an update on the changes to the reprocessing unit. The scientist says that he has solved the problem with the help of a student and introduces the doctor. The doctor and the war chief seem to recognize each other, and a fearful looking doctor tells Zoe to run, whilst the war chief screams for them to be stopped. In the ensuing chase, the doctor and Zoe get separated, with the doctor being chased by a group of guards. Zoe manages to make her way back to the ship where she is apprehended by Carstairs, who is still under the assumption that she is a spy and prepares to shoot her. Episode 5 The head scientist arrives with a pair of guards and stops Carstairs from shooting her. He then orders Zoe to be taken to the security section, whilst he takes the confused Carstairs away with him. Back at the barn, Von Weich is being kept under guard as Jamie managed to convince the Union soldier, whose name is Harper, to keep him alive. Jamie asks how much longer they must stay in the barn, and Harper says that they are waiting for their leader, Russell, to arrive, who will decide what to do with all three of them. Harper then questions Von Weich about the location of a secret tunnel that they use to transport the troops, but Jamie and Lady Jennifer tell him that there is no tunnel, and they start to tell him about the transport ship. Harper doesn't believe them and continues to search the barn for a hidden entrance, saying that it is the way back to their own times. A British soldier from the Crimean era named Spencer arrives and says that they can't waste any more time looking for the imaginary tunnel and prepares to shoot Von Weich. Harper stops him and the two engage in a fight. 
Using the fight as a distraction, Jamie tries to lead Lady Jennifer away, but they are stopped by a British sergeant from the Boer War era who fires his gun to break up the fight. The sergeant, who is actually Russell, berates the men for fighting and tells Spencer to take the captured supplies back to the HQ. As Harper tries to justify his actions, Jamie catches Von Vike trying to use a video communicator in the wall, calling everyone's attention to it. In the base, Zoe is brought into an interrogation room, and although she tries to remain defiant, she succumbs to a hypnosis device and is compelled to tell the truth. The security chief thinks she is lying when she gives her date of birth as being in the 21st century, but she eventually reveals the existence of the TARDIS and the Doctor. The security chief then shows her a series of images of soldiers, ordering her to identify the Doctor. Meanwhile, the Doctor himself is making his way down the corridors, avoiding the security patrols, when he accidentally wanders into an examination room, containing Carstairs and the head scientist. He explains to the confused scientist that the security alert that is out for him is actually for Zoe, and the reason he ran away was so that he could catch her. The scientist informs him that Zoe has been sent to the security zone, and the doctor then subtly asks for details about the commencement of the War Chief's grand plan. The doctor then asks to stay so he can observe the new improvements that are reprocessing unit, and he is allowed to stay with the scientist, asking him to secure Carstairs, who is currently being deprocessed meaning that he will remember everything when the unit has finished its task. The doctor pretends to do so, and when Carstairs wakes up, he recognises him, leading the scientist to try and apprehend him. Carstairs gets out of the unit and places the scientist into it instead, as the doctor starts it up. After catching Carstairs up on what happened, the duo then go in search of Zoe, with the doctor leaving the head scientist on simmer mode. Back in the barn, Russell is sceptical of Jamie and Lady Jennifer's claims about the video screen, and the ship, and Von Vike uses the distraction to dash forward and activate the video to send you an emergency call to the command centre. In the security section, the security chief is giving the war chief the results of his questioning, but lies about Zoe's error of origin, thinking that the war chief knows more about them than he's actually letting on. The war chief, sensing that he is withholding information, orders the security chief to accompany him to the control room to leave with the emergency call that has just come through. After they leave, the Doctor and Carstairs enter the interrogation room and knock out the guards so that they can rescue Zoe. She tells them about the interrogation that she went under, pointing out the hypnosis device that was used on her. The Doctor picks it up and uses it to scan through the pictures of the various soldiers, including Russell, Harper and Spencer, and he realises that they are known members of the Resistance. The Doctor thinks that if they can unite all the groups, using Zoe's eidetic memory to recognise them, then together they will have a greater chance to gain their freedom. The trio then leave to find the ship so that they can go back to the American Civil War zone. They follow a squad of guards that are making their way to the landing bay. Back in the barn, Harper reports that they have sentries guarding every way into the barn, but Jamie says that the ship can land inside it. Just then, they hear the dematerialization sound, and they all scatter for cover. The ship lands, and the guards disembark. Harper rushes out to attack them, but he is killed by their sonic rifles. However, the other resistance members manage to capture them and disarm the guards, and Russell marvels in horror over the effects of the weapons. Jamie then convinces him to enter the ship so they can go to the base and find out more about what's going on. Lady Jennifer demands to come as well, but Jamie tries to dissuade her on account of her being a woman, which only makes her want to go even more. Russell, however, is more tactful and requests that she go back to his own camp to attend to the wounded members of the Resistance. He then takes two other soldiers with him and Jamie into the ship and it dematerializes. Back at the base, the War Chief is berating the Security Chief for the lapses in security, and he turns the tables on the War Chief and asks how he recognised the Doctor and Zoe. The War Chief evades the question and orders the Security Chief to continue the search for the Doctor, as he intends to bring his dissatisfaction with recent events to the Warlord. The Security Chief returns to the cell to find the guard unconscious, and he rushes out to raise the alarm. 
He then locates the head scientist strapped into the reprocessing unit and frees him, telling the guards to wait outside. He tells the scientist about everything that has occurred and voices his suspicion that the war chief is in league with the doctor, as the war chief previously admitted that only his people have the secrets of time travel. He also said that if he betrayed his own people to join the warlord, how can they be sure that he won't betray them in turn? The war chief is informed about the returning ship and its deviation from the standard return protocol, and he takes command of the situation by ordering the guards to the landing bay. In the landing bay, the doctor and the others are waiting for a ship to return, and they see the guards enter the room. They watch in horror as the guards shoot down Jamie and the resistance members. End of part one. So, before we go to the trivia spot, I have to ask a very important question. Oh, yeah. Were you annoyed at the cliffhanger I left this split on? No, for one reason, and What's one that? reason only. What's that? Episodes one through five yeah. are on their own DVD, yes. and episodes six through ten are on a separate disc. <laughs> no, but I'm talking about in terms of the cliffhanger it was left on. Oh, the cliffhanger it was left yeah. on. Uh, yes, yes and no. Like it's, <laughs> I want to watch what comes next, <laughs> but in terms of a natural stopping point, yeah, it makes sense. Oh yeah, no. In terms of a natural stopping point, it's like the best, I think. Yeah, and it it I don't know if you knew the fact that the DVD does episodes one to nope. five on one disc and six to ten on a different disc. Nope, I can't remember back that far. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, it worked out well. It worked out yeah. well. Because cool. you totally know, like if episode six had been on that disc as well, it would have been like, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I keep going. Yeah. Cool. So, what have we got in the trivia spot this week? Cool. So the air date for the first five episodes of this story are the 19th of April to the 17th of May, 1969. The writers for the story are Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk. Uh, Terence, this is the first of six writing credits for Terence. We have discussed him before, though, and how he has been the script editor since the invasion, and he'll continue in that role up until Planet of the Spiders. From a writer credit perspective, we'll discuss Terence's work again in Robot, The Brain of Morbius, Horror of Fang Rock, State of Decay, and The Five Doctors. Malcolm Hulk, this is the second of eight Doctor Who writing credits from Malcolm. We previously discussed his work in The Faceless Ones, and we'll discuss him again in Doctor Who and the Silurians, The Ambassadors of Death, Colony in Space, The Sea Devils, Frontier in Space, and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. And I think with the exception of The Faceless Ones, for me anyway... Mm. Uh, between Terence and Malcolm that's an awful lot of heavy hitters to have on your resume oh it is yeah massive so the director for this one is David Maloney this is the third we've seen from David previously we discussed him in The Mind Robber and The Crotons we'll see his work again in a little bit of Frontier in Space then he has Planet of the Daleks Genesis of the Daleks Planet of Evil The Deadly Assassin and The Talents of Wang Cheyenne which I think I've mentioned before, David has some of my some of my favourites in there. Yeah, another, another lot of heavy hitters right there. Hmm. Uh, I must say, just on the subject of his direction for this, there are hmm. two things that I love. One is the snap ending of each episode. Hmm. Like, it just ends and also the music plays. There's no kind of, like, the normal fade away of the episode hmm. with the music coming in. But the intro, the intro is fantastic. Um, it is very good. It is slightly epileptic fit-inducing. 
Yeah. Just a smidge. So it's the sound of shells falling down with like Vickers and Bren machine gun fire and the flashes of muzzles to spell mm. out you know, the war games and like ter- uh, written by and directed by and all this type of stuff. But it really does set the tone, I think, for the overall story. Oh, it does very much so. But like by the second episode, I was kind of going, skip. Yeah, skip. <laughs> but what I love about the snap ending is that, like as we said, up until now, it's always been a case of the the credits will kind of fade into the final scene or the final scene will like fade into the credits which are fade mm. out to the credits this is just scene stops credits start mm. and it's really tense stuff so this story is the final story of the 1960s mm-hmm. it's also the last story produced in monochrome so color is coming yep <laughs> Discounting the Trial of a Time Lord, which is a number of linked stories that are separate stories in their own right. Yeah. This is the longest Doctor Who story to survive the purge. So, obviously we had... Um, we had Dalek's Master Plan, plan which was longer. But less but episodes survive. Less episodes survive, exactly. Yeah. This one is complete in its entirety. And like you've got the invasion, which would have been the next longest, was eight, and six of those eight survive. Yeah. Um. So this actually is the point where a lot of people start watching because you can watch uninterrupted, yeah, no missing episodes all the way through. Yes. Uh, random war fact that I I didn't know I, I found on the internet. Uh, the German soldiers in 1917. Uh, in the 1917 war zone, they're wearing those spiked helmets. Yeah. Uh, apparently, those weren't used after 1916. I couldn't remember the year they stopped being used, but they, I remember they did stop being used during that war. I think this is just, it's just the iconic World War One vision. It's you know? yeah, it's like the tip. It was like you know, it's like the Simpsons thing. Congratulations, you're all World War One historical recreationists, and they all throw up the hat. And it's like, oh god, no. <laughs> so apparently. Uh, the War Games was given 10 episodes when another story uh, titled Doctor Who and the Impersonators, it wasn't workable. Sounds like a great name for a band. Yeah, so it was meant to be a four-part story and then a six-part story to finish the season. That fell through. So Derek Sherwin, who came in as um, producer for the story, decided to close the season with a 10-part epic and he asked Terence to write it. Terence, and like we've talked about before, like Terence is very well known in the Doctor Who community as one of the major contributors from a writing perspective, from a script editor perspective, and like the number of target novelizations Terence has written is insane. But again, according to Terence, at the time, he knew he wasn't experienced enough to write a 10 episode story by himself. And that's why he asked Malcolm to come in and help. Uh, he was a long-term friend he was a mentor of Terence's and so Terence said look you know I can't do this one by myself can you come in and and help me out which again I like that I like when people acknowledge the fact that they need help with something yeah in every like I like that even in work do you know when someone says hey you know I'm doing this really cool thing I can't do it by myself can you help me out yeah not teamwork makes the dream work you know (laughs) (laughs) so we discussed at the beginning how obviously we've done five episodes. If we were to do all ten in one go, 
it would be a bit of a slog to watch it. Um, maybe, maybe not, but like it would be a lot to watch in one sitting. Yeah. Or a lot to prepare for one episode, right? I watch in one sitting, you don't. Apparently, when this aired in the United States, PBS ran all 10 episodes together and edited out into a single, like, omnibus that ran for, like, four hours. Yeah, like, I think, like, if you... Most TV episodes are, like, standard 25 minutes. So mm-hmm. if you take out the... No, again, this story doesn't do a whole lot of previous series I've done, which is the first 30 seconds of the new episode are the final 30 seconds of the preceding episode. It does a bit. Does a but but not, not as much. Like, maybe mm. 10 seconds. So, if you take all that in, plus the episodes have different lengths. Now, again, mm. 30 seconds of difference. You're looking at about three and a half to four hours. Yeah. And with the exception of a 25-minute walk over and back to your house, I have done this in one sitting. <laughs> Yeah, but but the PBS aired it as one big thing, which is crazy. Um, At least one station, though, did split it up into two parts Mm. um, by taking, like, the opening credits and whatever. So you described the doctor giving Zoe a kiss on the head. Yeah. Apparently, and I'm trying to think of a time to counteract this, but I don't think there is one. This is the first time the doctor kisses a companion on screen. Albeit in a purely platonic fashion. I don't think he ever kissed Susan. I No, he definitely didn't kiss Susan, but I'm trying to kiss, think, did he kiss, I'm trying to kiss, did he ever kiss Vicky on the head? I don't think so. I think he hugged her close. Yeah. I may have rested like his yeah. head on her head, but I don't yeah. think he ever actually kissed her on the head. I think that's because I have an image of him doing it as they're rushing into the TARDIS. Yeah, I think he... He cuddled her a lot, but I don't yeah, think he ever yeah. kissed her on the head. And again, but again, the fucking mitt makers. Um, it could have been a that. We're never going to know. Yeah. <laughs> fucking mitt makers. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, the ambulance that they use in the story is a real World War One ambulance. And Jane Sherman, who played Lady Jennifer, actually drove it. And apparently Patrick refused <laughs> And she mentioned on the DVD that one of the things that's quite interesting is on those old World War One vehicles, and this is something that Patty would probably give you nightmares, the brake and the accelerator are the other way around. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> so apparently at the start, there's a lot of sort of like stop, start, stop, start. And the Almonds never drove quite as fast as Jane would have maybe driven a normal car because she was using the wrong pedals and it was just really really weird i got very confused writing this like the first five minutes of this summary because (laughs) she arrives in that in that field ambulance Mm. yet on the hood of the field ambulance is a german iron cross i'm like but that's like that would signify that it's a german vehicle Yes, it's a British vehicle. It's treated as a British ambulance the whole way along. And I, like, I was just like, I had to go back and rewrite and the whole thing goes, okay, whose fucking ambulance is this? Because I want to be as accurate as possible. Because it could be important to the fucking story, you know? Yeah. Maloney clearly never planned for DVD releases of his story. Yeah, he, he didn't fucking plan for one, like, just Irish fella, like, fucking, what is it, like, 50 years on, to kind of go, is it German or is it British? I'm not quite sure. Because I didn't, like, I don't notice that shit, like. Yeah. 
Um, I there's there is some inconsistencies, all right. In the, the as we go on, uh, unless you have them in your trivia, but we'll go on. We'll see. So, yeah. one thing that um, Patrick did, because of course he did, um, all the big explosions. Uh, Patrick insisted on a demonstration. Mm-hmm. And a huge boulder landed right where they were due to be standing. And apparently he was like, that's why I wanted to see what it was like. Thanks very much. Um, The battleground that they filmed in, you know, that huge sprawling battleground. That was a rubbish tip (laughs) in Brighton. (laughs) And apparently it had been used in Oh, What a Lovely War. Also, if you imagine it was a tip. Yep. There were lots of rats everywhere and this upset Patrick so much that he threatened to quit on the spot if he saw one more Um, and apparently it was later revealed it brought back unpleasant memories of him during the war when he was on rat shooting duty yeah see the thing is like trench warfare World War 1 this place was fucking filled with rats yeah but these weren't rats that were included for the thing these were I know I know but it was just like because yeah, I, I yeah. presume we may have just where Patrick probably served in World War Two, mm-hmm. and he was on rat shooting duties apparently, which sounds incredibly unpleasant. Yep. Um, apparently, the aliens in this story mm-hmm. um, were originally meant to speak with the sort of cold alien voice, um, but it was David Maloney who came up with the idea of the spectacles that they used to hypnotize people, and we'll yeah. talk about that more when we talk about the villains because I have thoughts. Before we go into the cast, one last call out, and then if you have your inconsistency yeah. call out, we can do that one. Mm-hmm. Patrick Troughton's son, David, also appears in the story. Yes, but not in this part. It's in part two of the story. Yeah, I just included it because otherwise I forget. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, believe me, you like after watching Sharp, you'll recognize him. <laughs> you, you and he's wearing a very familiar uniform um yeah no there is a couple of inconsistencies so with the exception of two zones the mm. roman which are called the roman zone and the greek zone mm. i called out every zone that appears in that map mm. there is redcoats from the battle of culloden there is soldiers from the napoleonic era mm. neither of which fall into any of those time zones let's see now so you're saying it's the Romans and the who don't appear on the map? So no, no, the the Ro- there's I called out every zone apart from two. So there's one called the Roman zone and one called the Greek zone. Hmm. Uh, but they're just regional zones; they're not to do any specific wars. But there are soldiers that appear in the story that are not from any of the time zones on the map. Ah. Yeah. Okay. And also, just while we're on the subject of the trivia, I suppose. Because I don't think it, it's not really huge story relevant. But this went with a very unique spin on the, civil, the American Civil War, I thought. How so? So, Lady Jennifer and Jamie are captured by Union soldiers. And, like, you know, and obviously, at, I suppose, like, at this stage, the Union are always viewed as the, the you know, the, free, the freeing heroes. The people that, free, you know, help to fight, get rid of slavery. And which is why they have... Um, Harper is a is a Buffalo soldier. He's uh, one of the Black Volunteers. Hmm. But the Union soldiers they're very rough and you know like they're really like antagonistic to Lady Jennifer and Jamie. But when the Confederate soldiers come in, it's all like the you know Southern hospitality. You know like only the Yankees would treat 
civilians like this, you know? Mm. I thought that was kind of a really a very strange take to no look as i said look, on both sides of the conflict there's always that kind of shit you know but i just always kind of you know that they went with the atypical portrayal of both sides at the time yeah i think i've seen it portrayed that way before do you know but, but, um but some stuff that early yeah well i don't watch a lot of stuff that early so yeah. i don't really know but like <laughs> um now again, like my my scope for like your know, westerns is like mostly kind of post Civil War stuff. There's obviously you know some Civil War stuff I've seen, but again, it's always you know Johnny Reb bad, Billy Yank good. Yeah, it's a it's it's a it's an interesting thing. Where the hell? Sorry, now I was clicking around like a dope. Uh... So there's call outs here around production errors that the zone map. Um, doesn't align with the physical layout. Yeah. According to the map, you'd have to go through both the American Civil War Zone and the Crimean War Zone in order to reach the Roman Zone, which apparently didn't wasn't a thing. Yeah. Uh, where the hell is the list of the zones? I thought he was looking at there. Okay, the time zones are divided into the following wars or periods of Earth history: Roman, Greek, Crimean War, First World War, Peninsular War. American Civil War, Mexican Civil War, English Civil War, Thirty Years' War, Boer War, and Russo-Japanese Rus- Russo- War. P- Peninsular didn't appear on the map, though. Hmm. There's Pen- Peloponnesian War, but there's no Peninsular War. Hmm. We're falling down a rabbit hole here. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> it's yeah, really not that yeah. important. <laughs> no, it is not. And there is, but there is one other thing about the American Civil War zone that I was fucking dreading. Mm. And thankfully, they didn't go into it at all. It was when Von Wyck appears as the Confederate captain. Mm. And he addresses the Union soldier as boy. Mm. And he said it with the intention for what that word at that time meant. Mm. It's not touched on again by any of the Confederate soldiers. And I was like, thank fuck. Yeah, I think that was just... I think... We can get to this a bit later on in the character discussion. But I think to your point around... The way they, you know, maybe flip the script on the traditional portrayal of mm. the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was their acknowledgement of, you know, we know it wasn't a hundred percent. Yeah, the other end. Maybe I think it possibly was it because if you think about it, like you know, the concept of the resistance groups is uniting liberated soldiers from all mm. sides of the conflict together under the one banner of trying to fucking get home. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah, like, like I think that's a nice kind of smaller little message to have within it, you know? Yeah. So let's do our cast and then we can move on to our actual yeah. character discussion because we've done a weird rambling yeah. off the side there around time zones and everything. But, but this is what we kind of talk about in this kind of stuff. It is, that's true. Yeah. Um, so Lady Jennifer, I've mentioned, is played by Jane Sherwin. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Jane and she was actually the wife of producer Derek Sherwin. Interesting thing around the way she's credited so, she's credited as Lady Jennifer Buckingham for episode one, mm-hmm. Lady Jennifer for episodes two to four, and just Jennifer for episode five. Can you imagine like, if she stays on longer, it'll just be Jenny, Jen, and then finally just Jay. <laughs> um, outside of who Jane's other acting credits include Blake Seven, Paul Temple, Barlow, and Softly Softly Task Force. Lieutenant Carstairs, who 
I thought it was just the way they pronounced his name because Lieutenant Carstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, no, his name was actually pronounced Carstairs. I was like, okay. He is played by David Savile. This is the first of three Doctor Who acting credits for David. We'll see him again in The Claws of Axos and The Five Doctors. He similarly went through a weird naming in this, right? So he's credited he's credited as Lieutenant Carstairs for episode one. Lieutenant spelled like L-I-E-U-T full stop Carstairs for episodes two and three. And just Carstairs for the rest <laughs> of it. Radio Times built him as Lieutenant Carstairs in episodes one through three. So again, weird thing with the way they're doing the credits for these mm. characters. His non-who credits include the Power Game, the Doctors, Warship, Gems, and Kinsey. General Smythe is played by Noel Coleman. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for Noel. His non-who credits are vast. (laughs) Uh, Five Children and It, The Count of Monte Cristo, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Captain Pogwash, which sounds familiar. Do you know what Captain Pogwash was? It sounds familiar again, but I can't quite. I will look it up as you go. Look it up as I'm talking. Uh, Zed Cars, Dixon of Doc Green, Richard the Lionheart, Emergency Ward 10, Ivanhoe, The Last of the Mohicans, and Red Dwarf. I remember him in Red Dwarf. I remember very little of Red Dwarf. He's like the the, the priest of the cat's people. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is uh, Captain Pogwash what I think it is? It's a cartoon. Yes. Yeah. And it's... It's like a fat little pirate. Yeah, it's a fat little pirate. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Noel passed away back in 2007. Von Wyck is played by David Garfield. This is the first of two on-screen Doctor Who appearances for David. We'll see him again in The Face of Evil. He is also in the Big Finish production, The Hollows of Time. His non-Who credits include Fish. Oh, fuck it, I've got this one again. The Aneedle Line. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Paul Dark. Lorna Dune, Jack and Nori, Zed Cars, and the IT crowd. So as the security chief, we have James Bree. This is the first of three Doctor Who credits for James. We'll see him again in Full Circle and The Ultimate Foe. He was also in the TV movie Downtime, which I'm sure we'll discuss at some point. We've mentioned it in the past. His non-Who credits include The Newcomers, The Money Man, Ace of Wands, Zed Cars, Secret Army, and Silent Witness. And James passed away in 2008. Finally, we have the War Chief, who's played by Edward Brayshaw. This is the second and final Doctor Who appearance for Edward. We previously saw him in Reign of Terror as Leon Colbert. Well, we didn't really see him. We saw a reconstruction of him, but that's the point. His non-Who credits include The Ides of March, A Man Called Harry Brent, The Three Musketeers, The Further Adventures of the Three Musketeers, The Saint, The Avengers, and Moonbase 3. Edward passed away back in 1990. And before you go... There is actually one trivia I was wondering if you would call out. Mm. The head scientist is the yes. snooty butler from The Last Crusade that calls Indiana Jones, Mickey Mouse, and gets punched out for it. Really? Yep. Hmm. I did not look at him because you didn't tell me to. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so many hours in the week, lads. And yeah. Paddy gives me a list of characters to look up, and those are the ones I look up. <laughs> Plus, there are times I just want to come and kind of go, yeah, but you didn't know this. <laughs> yeah, like, the, the trivia spot is really like, how much of this trivia has Paddy looked up, and how, how many things is he going to come up with that I didn't bother mentioning? For reasons of, A, I didn't understand the context, which, for historical stories, is very true. <laughs> 
or B, I couldn't have a fucking bothered with it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, actually, the guy that played Harper, like, like there, there's so many people in this that I recognize. Like the guy that mm. played Harper, he was in the Tin Blue Line, you know, with Rowan Atkinson. Mm. He's currently in EastEnders. Uh, he's character. Was in... he like the? This is gonna sound incredibly racist. Was he the black guy in the Tin Blue yeah, Line? <laughs> yeah, that's him. Yeah. Like the the main cast guy. Yeah, right? in the in the main in the main cast, he's the death yeah. sergeant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what's the racist. Was he the one black character <laughs> in that show? Well, like, you know what I meant, though. The yeah, one... absolutely. But see, the, yeah, that's the kind of thing that that's main why, cast actor. That's why show. when I was writing the description for this, I was like, "Do I use the term Buffalo Soldier, which isn't technically correct for another four years until after the Amer- end of the American Civil War, or do we just call him a black soldier?" Yeah, I remember <laughs> we discussed this. I was like. Does the fact that he's black matter? With that one line with Van Dyke? Yes. Yes. For the rest yeah. of it, absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. This has been a weird rambling trivia sure. section. <laughs> Look, it's the final story of, and it's an epic story of, you know, for like the second Doctor. So. Oh, there is so much trivia I didn't include because it all pertains to the second six, <laughs> the second five. The only one I carried over was probably the one about Patrick's son, just because I didn't yeah. want to forget it. Cool, yeah. So, lads, if you're listening to this, strap in, get a, ba- a bag of popcorn or something. <laughs> so, thanks, Trish. We're going to take a temporary rest from the trivia spot because we're going to finish it off next week um so we have characters to discuss now as the main part we have the doctor the companions of jamie zoe as always also including lady jennifer and lieutenant carstairs uh we have our villains this week which are smythe von vike uh the security chief and the war chief mm-hmm. so uh the doctor do you want to go first will i go first go first cool um where are we are now so <laughs> you go first you're not yeah, okay i had to change the page so this is your swang song mr trotten and you're having an absolute fucking blast aren't you like this is a great person i think this is like an amazing performance from him like like in the first five episodes it's it's great, and it's like it's almost like a great. It's like a you know, a final farewell tour like in the sense of like it's all the greatest hits, like mm. the fake accents, the swaggering bravado, the buffoonery, the lovely tender moments, mm. the actual fear, like all we're missing is him dressing up like like a girl, <laughs> or like an old crone, or with a big fake mustache. There's still uh, five episodes to go. Do, yeah. we don't know. he did uh, get funky sunglasses. He did get funky sunglasses. Uh, Geordie LaForge before Geordie LaForge. <laughs> um, or before like Geordie LaForge started a trend of everyone wearing headbands across their eyes to play Geordie in Games of Star Trek. There are two fantastic standout moments in terms of these first five episodes. Mm. I think, like, you know, he's great the whole way through. Absolutely fantastic. Can't, I cannot fault his performance. Mm. But there are two great moments here. One, when he kisses Zoe on the head. Because it's very reminiscent of Seeds of Death, but he was willing to accept his death mm. right right then and there. And it's a sort of like, everything will be all right, Zoe. And it's just a very, it's like, it is just a very emotional, tender kiss to to, like, to a loved one that you're saying goodbye to. Yeah. The second standout moment is that part where himself and the, the war chief see each other. Like, 
the realization in their eyes and the fear in both of their eyes. I'm going to talk about it as well when we come to uh, the war chief. It's fucking hairs standing up on the arms and the back of the neck. It was phenomenal. It was mm. so good. And it's just like it. And, and as I said, like that's part of like the greatest hits that we've seen in terms of the f- the fear and everything. Mm. Like, I know that we have five left to go, but I would say that this is a clear outright contender for a high, you know, best performances in um, his rambling. Mm, I would agree. I think this is a fantastic performance from Patrick. I think. Yeah. He's giving 100% in every scene. Mm. You're like, Patrick's stories, Patrick's usually fairly solid. I think last week we had a little bit of a concern that was a little bit phoned, but Patrick is usually very solid, but like, you know, there's some scenes that the Doctor isn't as prominent in, so not maybe not that he's coasting or whatever, but mm. it doesn't come across as much. Whereas this, it's every scene. It's That's 100%. It. I just think, like, whatever enthusiasm he had lost during the time when they were doing the Space Pirates, like, mm. it's just been, like, up to 90 here. Mm. And I wonder if, like, you know, the fact that, like, we said that he didn't enjoy the Space Pirates, and we said that, yeah. like, the Space Pirates ran directly into this. What yeah. were, like, they pre-recorded their last episode of the Space Pirates and then went off to do this at the same time. I wonder if it was just a break, you know, a break from a story that he really wasn't enjoying Yeah, into this one that he other than the rats he really was enjoying do you know and like, we'll, we'll talk more next week around patrick's leaving and stuff like that that can be a, a, a conversation for the day since he's not leaving in these five episodes but i think it's sort of you know how do you want to be remembered yeah do you know and so he's giving his giving his all to that Oh, like he's like as I said, like he is throwing himself into this, and I'm really, really glad that that tribute point you made about the rats didn't fact you know like your head was resolved mm. because like this is like I'll talk about it in my overall, yeah. but this would have been a terrible story to quit on, you know. Yeah, no, I'd agree, and like there is one thing in this story I'm slightly concerned about. Yeah, the fact that he left that scientist on simmer. <laughs> as we the audience and possibly he the doctor has no idea what the long term effects could be of just leaving someone in that machine with their brain being fried well see this is the thing like he okay now what I will say is that he had been working on that machine with the scientist so a little bit okay yeah so like, presumably he would know or again where Zoe when you need her to call out you know his you know fucking cowboy bullshit uh, science um I suppose yeah if you think about it the guy's brain is just getting factory resetted repeatedly yeah it's like dude what the hell um I do love though so I've been a bit critical of the second doctor mm-hmm. on the whole and how he treats his companions yeah I've been a bit critical of it I wasn't that critical of him with Ben and Polly. I thought he was quite good with Ben and Polly, actually. Um, but the way he was with Jamie at many points, mm-hmm. you know, constantly putting Jamie in danger against Jamie's will and yeah. in direct contradiction to Jamie saying that he doesn't, doesn't want to do something. 
the way he regularly sidelined Victoria and there were times it seemed he didn't give a shit. Yeah. Though thankfully there were redeeming moments for him with her as well. And similarly with Zoe, this constant belining her intelligence, you know, making fun of the fact that she's such an analytical mind and whatever. I love that, at least so far, and I don't remember the next five episodes. I haven't watched them in this rerun. I don't remember them from when we watched it ten years ago. Mm. But I'm loving that in this final story, his relationship with both of them is handled exceptionally well. There's no mockery, no sign lighting, just support, love, and protectiveness of the two of them. Yeah. Which is fantastic. And I'm so glad that we got to see it. I'm so glad that, like, you know, like you said, like, the fact that Zoe is essentially being left alone. Jamie's going off to be court-martialed for, we'll get to that in a second, but, you know, and the doctor's going to be killed. And Zoe's potentially going to be left alone. And he just has that little touching singular moment with her. Or the fact that with Jamie, he just takes the time to explain. There's no exasperation. There's mm. no nothing. It's every, everything in its own time. Yeah. Which I love. And I love the fact that we got to see that. Because we've seen sprinkles of that throughout. But we've also seen him being incredibly obnoxious and condescending and a bit of a dick. So for this final story, or for at least for this first half of this final story, for it to be that loving, supportive, protective dynamic, I'm loving that. I'm really happy that we got to see that. Yeah. I am curious to see because i can't remember i'm curious to see how the next six episodes go because it's clear that he knows more than he's telling oh hugely. or at least he suspects more than he is telling and i'm looking forward to seeing how he reacts to what is to come how the others react to him mm-hmm. and whether he shares that he had suspicions or that you know, how he knows the war chief or whatever yeah. it has to be i'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out yeah definitely I because obviously I watched it, say nothing, yeah. nothing. I remember bits of it, but I don't remember like yeah context. I just remember I just remember mm-hmm. like snapshots. Um, but yeah, I think you know to your point on would this be in you know is this possibly going to be on my top list of performances for Patrick? It's definitely a contender. Yeah, definitely a contender. Uh, cool. So now we have companions. So we've got Jamie, Zoe, Lady Jennifer, and Carstairs. Jamie working with a red coat. I never thought we'd see the day. Particularly consider how gung-ho he was to attack the one that appeared in the Mind Robber. The fact that he attacked him and got turned into a cardboard cutout. Mm. Twice. Yeah. You've come a long way, Jamie McCrimmon, in a very short period of time. <laughs> the last time you tangled with a red coat, you were recast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's great to see that, like, the, the gapping between the mind robber and this isn't massive, but it's great to see that Jamie, using his analytical brain a bit, mm. recognizing that he's being punished for something, he's being put in prison for abandoning an army he's not part of. And then he recognizes another military person being brought into that situation who, like him, is very clearly out of time. Yeah. And as opposed to just immediately pouncing on him and beating the shit out of him with his usual, you know, war chant. Instead, he takes the time to question him, to get to know him, to sort of put him at ease. Big character development for Jamie in that one in that one interaction, you know? Yeah. Um, and it really emphasizes the fact that, like, 
And again, we see it with the American Civil War scenes. He goes off, he takes a guy off a horse, he hops up. Like, Jamie on the horse is just like, he looks amazing. We needed more scenes of Jamie on a horse because, like, he's very commanding. Yeah. Um, but again, we can see that no matter when he is, he can fend for himself. And he can get himself out of dangerous situations. The one negative, though. Yeah. You're still a little sexist, aren't you, Jamie? Actually, that was just a smidge. That was a point I was going to raise, but I but I'm distracted now because you said Jamie on a horse. I can think it was the Monty Python sketch. And they're like uh, a Scotsman on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I I this was like initially in my notes that this was the, my final point, but I'm actually going to make it my first point. Is mm-hmm. that you meet a woman in the middle of a battlefield. And she's not phased. Not phased mm. at all. She serves in a field hospital. And she's some, seen some pretty horrible shit. She doesn't need your protection, dude. <laughs> if anything, you need hers. It's one of these things where, like, it is incredibly sexist. And she calls him on it and he admits to it. <laughs> but it's also like, oh, Jamie, seriously. Like, if, if you kind of... It's, I hate saying this, right? Because I hate when sexism is presented in this manner but it's kind of cute because she's like is it because i'm a woman and he's like uh well um yeah you see yeah, it's thing is like it's because like jamie is a very he's got a very boyish face on him so like yeah he, he, like he's meant to be like what like 19 18 yeah like something like that it's like it's like he's he's not lived long enough i suppose to really see no like okay like you know time is relative you know but from his own time i suppose that's the stale thing is that you know like the the stuff that's instilled in him that yeah you can take the boy out of the highlands but you can't take the highlands out of the boy type thing you know yeah i think it's i think it's part of the thing the fact that like in every story jamie's referred to as a boy yeah he's never referred to as a man no <laughs> he's referred to as boy or child he's a fresh-faced young fella um, who's killed like a dozen people <laughs> actually yeah like, in this story he's really disproving my you know my belief of the McCrimmon effect as you yeah like out. we've talked before about yeah. the McCrimmon effect I'm gonna go back to this right because yeah. we talked about this before yeah you introduced it yeah. you introduced it to me mm-hmm. and we compared it to the wharf, wharf effect. effect yeah and the wharf effect is that you put your strongest character in the case of Star Trek Next Generation that is wharf up against the super strong foe and have your strongest character lose as your way of showing how strong the enemy is. Stargate SG-1 did it occasionally with Teal'c. Yeah. But that, that that's the wharf effect. And you were like, oh no, the McCrimmon effect came first. And so I'm like, cool. And we've had a couple of instances where, yeah, Jamie gets his ass handed to him. They're very rare though. <laughs> the McCrimmon effect is just see someone... I'm gonna hit it. <laughs> it's yeah, no, because like it's okay. You've got it in um, underwater menace. Mm. You've got it in the moon base a small bit. Uh, you have it in tomb of the Cybermen. I think that's really the last, I suppose, interaction of it. Yeah. But I suppose my first run through of it, I kind of made a grandiose, like over, like actual statement that no one realizing is like even even before you mentioned, it, I'm like, we really gotta re- reevaluate this stance. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think if we're to define the McCrimmon effect, I yeah. think it. I think there's a two. I think there's a two phase. Phase one. Mm-hmm. The willingness to leap into any fight in order to protect those around you. Yeah. Thing two. Mm-hmm. The McCrimmon effect is when you take a strong but unarmed character because even though he carries a knife Jamie rarely ever uses it to fight yeah and put him up against what on paper is a superior foe in terms of weaponry or in terms of training or in terms of physical presence and having your your unarmed strong but still relatively weaker character win because that's the thing with Jamie. Jamie, yeah, occasionally he gets taken out, but he's willing to jump in, and more often than not, he is successful. <laughs> he is. I know he. After this, he can lay claim to having punched out some of the members of the most famous armies in history. Yes, he can. Was like he's punched out. Was like he's punched out a British soldier. Mm. He's punched out a Confederate soldier. <laughs> Who else is there? He's, he yeah, didn't he's, interact with the Roman legionaries, did he? No, he didn't. They ran away. Run away! Um, but he will punch out others <laughs> as time goes on. Um, but again, what this story did is that it shows that Jamie can carry our interest by himself. End of episode three, they're separated. And himself and Lady Jennifer carry on one section of a story that is just as interesting as what the Doctor and Zoe are doing. I now have Bravery Bold Sir Ramad in my head. Yeah. But it's like Bravery Bold Doc Patrick is what's in my head. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) No, I didn't. I didn't. (laughs) And we've referenced this song before because I remember editing myself saying that. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, I'm Uh, interested to see. Obviously, I mean, we have to talk about the cliffhanger, right? Yeah. But Jamie, mm-hmm. Jamie got shot with a weapon that we've seen kill, kill with with shorter um, duration. Uh, yep, like uh, of effect. So, wh- what happens to Jamie? We'll have to see. The, the mm-hmm. DVD ended. <laughs> they couldn't go on to the next episode, even if I wanted to. <laughs> yep, absolutely. He didn't get shot in the ass this time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll see how it's going to go mm. uh, so we now go on to his compatriot in the tournament <laughs> you, what word were you searching for there I don't know counterpart polar opposite <laughs> I think polar opposite is probably yeah. the best one <laughs> um, I love there's a thing I love in the story with Zoe mm. Because she doesn't have many large contributions in this story. No. But she has one. And it's one that I really liked. I love how Zoe is the one who frees the Doctor in this story. I actually have he... it on my... Yeah, Sorry, on. I, was gonna... I have it on my notes. She's got stealth, dexterity and willpower. She's really, really rolling very well on the character creation sheet. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, like in D and D, like her her her, her first roles to to yeah. do her characters, 
Either she wasn't using standard array or she had great dice. Um, yeah, yeah, like DMs just go bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> um, why I like it though mm. is, you know, we've been a fan of Classic Who for over ten years, right? We keep saying it's ten years; it's over ten years. It's closer to twelve years, I think, Mary, at this point. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we've had to listen to, um, particularly when we we're in college, but a bit, a bit now, like on the internet and stuff, is. Oh, in the classic stories, the companions were always damsels in distress and they always needed rescuing. And it's something I hate. It's something I know you hate as well. Mm-hmm. Because while there are times where, yes, the companion needs to be rescued, there are also times when the companion, and I'm talking specifically the female companion here, because the male companions didn't go through this same problem. At least not to the same extent. No. There are plenty of times when the female companion saves the doctor. Yeah. No, absolutely. Every single one of them down the line, they either save him fully, in this case with Zoe, or they're willing to, like say with Victoria, while she never got to save Jamie and the doctor mm-hmm. and such, she was always willing to. Yeah. And it was that willingness to go out and find them and help them and defend them. whatever. So I love that in this story this final story for this doctor the story to end the 60s the final story in black and white we see the female companion who is like you said you know her character sheet she's got plus you know yeah she's getting plus threes plus fours across the board here um for her intelligence for her dexterity for her her observation skills are phenomenal like it's great to see that in this final story of this season because sadly in Patrick's run the female companions have been up and down they've been up and down they haven't been as strong as we've seen some previous female companions yeah. um so for me I thought that was great I mean other than that I mean Wendy is great in the story while Zoe doesn't have many large contributions no she's engaging in every scene her reactions to everything are good. I love when she's being questioned. <laughs> and you yeah. can tell that like even though she's being hypnotized, there's that little Zoe voice in her head going, This man's a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's like you but like what times are she's like, I'm not from a fucking time zone. You can tell there's a part of her going, I'm speaking to a moron. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he doesn't know how to use a candle. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, I look again. I think they're on the same page with this one. It's just that, like, well, yes, she is in the background here. Again, it's great to see her paired up with the doctor. Mm. Uh, I like that Jamie was interested in seeing what's happening with her when they, mm. you know, they're all kind of off on their separate stuff. But again, as you say, like, she doesn't wait to be rescued. She goes out and she does, um, she rescues the doctor. And also, as well, we're going to have her eidetic memory come into play. And mm. that I can't wait to see how that's going to work. Yeah, because this is something that they've poked fun at in the past. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so it's going to be great to see it actually utilized. Yeah. And again, you're going back to the doctor and like how I like the fact that the doctor's relationships in this one, um, they're, they're it's like this is how Doc Pat would, this is how Patrick would want the doctor to be remembered and want yeah. his doctor to be remembered because. Mm. Here, it's like, okay, there was how many pictures were being flashed through that thing? Mm-hmm. And he literally just says, okay, we don't need that. Zoe, you'll remember, won't you? And she's like, yeah. yeah. And she's like, cool. Great. 
It's exhibit. Yeah. So we have Lady Jennifer next. Mm-hmm. Or as I like to call her, the hot lips of this story. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if we're talking late season hot lips, yeah. who's actually fun, then yeah. Yeah. We're not talking movie hot lips or early season hot lips. <laughs> I don't know. I think she looks like a bit of a sultry bitch with fire in her eyes, you know? <laughs> Well, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I, I, I'll give her that one. Like, but like no, the hot I, lips from the movie yeah. is not the hot lips that we get in the latter seasons of the show. No, um, but like I call her hot lips because I'm explicitly referring to the later seasons, post Frank Burns, because she's very cool under pressure, hmm. well capable of handling any situation that she finds herself in, hmm. and she's got great chemistry with everyone, especially the tall, handsome officer. Hmm. Um, no I I love I I really enjoyed Lady Jennifer like and I kind of bummed out that she's been sent off um, you know to the the resistance camp because Mm -hmm. I wanted to see her go on the rescue mission like I wanted to see her like she's been so engaging for these Mm -hmm. five episodes and like I just love her sending up to Jamie and it's just like okay you know like Jamie's you know, like as fucking blunt as a, a spoon, you know, like it's like obviously I look look, I'm not gonna say it because that's what you want me to do. But Russell is crafty and Russell says, Look, there's wounded and she's like, Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid few... Hippocratic oath. <laughs> a few things for me with Lady Jennifer. First of all, it took me way too long to realise that her name is Lady, lady. Je- like her title is Lady. Is Lady. Yeah. Which is insane in some concepts in real life. Like this is a member of the peerage who volunteered to be a nurse mm-hmm. in the First World War. That by itself is like a whole. There's a whole fucking fan fiction out there somewhere that mm-hmm. documents Lady Jennifer's life <laughs> and how she came to that choice. Especially because when it comes to World War One, mm. like a lot, a lot of historians will kind of say that World War One is a clear change in how warfare was fought yeah and therefore like you know having field nurses it's a completely different kettle of fish as to what he would have been exposed to before yeah and the fact that she's a volunteer you know like yeah to to put it in some historical context and my limited historical context because history is not my forte like we know in world war ii now queen elizabeth was in world war ii yeah do you know um but we're talking 1917 here, mm-hmm. do you know, and we're not just talking about a nurse at an aid station or a nurse, you know, that you often see in movies, you know, like the yeah. behind, you know, away from the front lines dealing with, with injured shoulders. She was driving around essentially no man's land mm-hmm. in an ambulance by herself. <laughs> That's like... She is fearless, and like she has to be to do what she does. Yeah, you know. And what I like is the fact that you know these people are being plucked out of time. Mm. But that's what she was doing before. Do you know? It's not what she's doing that strikes her as odd. It's just her lack of memory. Yeah. Do you know? It's like she was doing this before they plucked her out, which is. Fantastic. She's incredibly strong-willed and the fact that she's able to break the hypnosis and logic out what's happening to her is great. 
And I do like how she stood up to Jamie. Yeah. Or I like how she's like, is it because I'm a woman? And he's like, uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. And she's like, oh, fuck's sake. But to your point, Russell mentions the wounded. And I get the sense that Lady Jennifer is the type of person who she could have continued to battle her point. Hmm. Do you know? And she could have continued the argument and forced her way onto the ship. But she strikes me as a character who's intelligent enough to know, okay, they're wounded here. Hmm. I can help them. I don't know what the hell is going on in there. Yeah. But I can do good here. And, you know, you can kind of say that, like, Russell kind of hoodwinked her a bit because we don't know if there actually is wounded. He just says there are. But it's, I think her choice to stay is still a strong one, do you know? Because from what we've seen of her up to now, where she drives around in war zones in an ambulance, she is willing to work as a secretary. She's all about helping out in the best way she can. Yeah. And when he mentions wounded, she's like, okay, I'm not a fighter. This is my best way. So I'll stay. Um, but yeah, I would have liked to have seen her on the ship, though. I think it would have been cool. Yeah, I think it would have been like, pretty awesome. And now we've got Lieutenant Carstairs. Poor Carstairs. There are moments where it seems like he doesn't know whether he's fucking coming or going. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that in the best way, because like he's being brainwashed and reset and like gaslit by people <laughs> over and over again. The poor, and you could tell like when the doctor wakes him up yeah you could tell that like the doctor just drags him off and he's just like uh, 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 okay where am I going <laughs> <laughs> he's like uh, who, I trust him cool I trust him go, go, go follow him and I'm like you poor bastard I I love Carstairs like I think he's great like, he never lets his orders get in the way of doing what he knows to be the right thing yeah. And like obviously it's the conditioning wanes that sense of right and wrong hmm. starts to come more to the fore and that's how he ends up with the group. Um all I can say is David Savile's acting is top notch hmm. in these five because as you pointed out, like he doesn't know where he's coming or going. He's hypnotized, he's dehypnotized, he's under influence, he's not. And the scene where he's about to blow Zoe's head off. Hmm. And obviously that's, you know, a cliffhanger. And mm. it's like, he does everything so well. It's not hammy. Yeah. Which, like, we've seen some hammy performances for, like, fucking hypnotized people and so on. Um, it's it's not. He's fantastic the whole way through. And you can tell in his eyes there's that little bit of internal characters battling his order. Yeah. You can see it. It's there. Mm. You know, which, which, is, which is great. Do you know? And I tried to work out a headcanon that would work, but no, I can I can't get uh, Lady Jennifer and Carstairs to be Ian's parents. I, I it just the, the timing just doesn't work out. <laughs> uh, Why not? Uh, because Ian's in his thirties. Thirties, yes. So no, uh, no, 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 not 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 parents, grandparents, because oh, grandparents. They, they their daughter would have had to have married to someone called Chesterton. Because Carsters and Buckingham do not have Chesterton make. That is true. Yeah, that's what that it is was. true. Or maybe, maybe, right? Yeah. 
he just didn't like the name Carstairs, so he changed it. Um, no, but I think Carstairs is great. Um, I think he's a good officer. Hmm. Well, except when it comes to... No. But this is the thing. A good officer yeah. knows a bullshit order. Yeah. You know? And like, in ter- like, I'm sure in actual military, they'll be treated very differently. But in terms of the military we like to see in media, mm-hmm. a good officer will always stand up when an order is bullshit. Yeah. Oh, Do you know, I, how well that works in real military? Well, is a separate thing. But it's what we like to see in our media representation of the military. Yeah. Joe, you know, it's like it's Jack O'Neill being blustery and refusing to do stuff. You know, it's literally every other character in media. So many court marshals. <laughs> um, but like, and the thing is, as I said, like he jumps right in with with the group. Yeah, I do love how this is gonna sound weird. I love how he got captured. Hmm. Oh yeah, hugely. The fact that he starts the van, it's up and running, and the fact that he's just like, go, just, just go, and he stays, and he fights, and he sends the rest of them on, and he could have very easily, as soon as the car started. He could have run and dived into the back and hidden and he might have been fine. But it's his duty to protect the rest. I thought that was great. Oh, like it's it's absolutely like you know, it's a great way for that for him to show like just how honourable of a person he is. But I think a lot of that is helped by David Maloney's on location direction. Or like mm. or even like he's like the cinematography. Because that sequence where they're trying to get the tree off the road and Jamie has to stop, you know, tackle the guy that's trying to stop them. And mm. then there's the, the chase scene and it's just everything about that is just I love the location shots here. They're yeah. absolutely beautiful to look at. Yeah. And I would have loved to have seen them actually fighting the Roman legionaries. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would have been fun. Um but I think the way they did it with this particular scene instead Hmm. I think it's much more effective because gun versus gun rather than gun versus sword which is a bit shit I don't know I agree completely so now we have our villains yes so we have Van Vyck and Smythe who I've kind of lumped together yeah because and there's the security chief and the war chief so for Smythe and Von Vyck, my first one is boys and their toys. Except these toys are people and these men treat them like ants. Seriously, get out of my notes. Like, honestly, like it's like I have a thing that's in there. Like two little kids playing with soldiers on the board. And it's really disconcerting to see the enjoyment they get out of this. Yeah, it's like, oh, what are you going to do to this maneuver? But you'll devastate my men. It's like, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens to their morale. Oh, but what if I flank you over this way? It'd be what uh, happens to your morale. I'm like, like no, it, what it's, it's pure bang. I shot you. You're dead. No, fuck off. You didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but like, they're basically two kids playing Risk. Yeah. Let's see which Except one of them is. <laughs> they're using real people. Yeah. But we'll see which one of them is stupid enough to try and take Asia. <laughs> <laughs> Who uh, do you find more intimidating of the two? Smite, 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 smite. Why? Okay, there is an awful lot to be said 
for an imposing skull, a pair of milk bottle glasses, and sideburns. <laughs> okay, I was going to say there's very little to be said by a somewhat cheap knockoff-looking James Bond villain with a monocle. Yeah, he like he's <laughs> like he does look like a like a rented Blofeld. Yeah, uh, and like yeah. the monocle, and particularly in particularly in the American Civil War time zone, the mm. accent. Yeah, like, it's oh. it's like like you're clearly not German, so stop yeah. pretending to be a German person affecting a Southern accent. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's. Yeah. So why it is much more intimidating for me because he plays calm, hmm. friendly. You know, he at the beginning you get the sense that he's a good relationship with um, Captain Ransom. Captain Ransom. But then when that sergeant whatever brings him his cup of tea, he goes batshit. Oh, like that. Huge. Like it's like a really weird granddad. I, I love I love all my grand I love all my grandkids, but stay out of my ga- cabbage patch. <laughs> but like the fact that he can flip like that, yeah. do you know? And the fact that he flips, and then the way he's like, no, nope, we're going to, you know, like the fact that he is confident enough in his abilities that like he does he knows that there's a percentage of people that the hypnotism doesn't apply to, mm-hmm. but he's still railroading the court martial. And whatever, with full confidence. He's like, no, we've already seen that. No, it's already been a thing. But like, like, there's something right, about the... Okay, now, I think of the two, like, Von Weich, it seems to be more like a pain in the arse. Hmm. Smite, though, feels legitimately dangerous. Yes. And as well, so whenever they use the monocle, or like whenever they use their glasses... Hmm. There's like like this like kind of very sinister music that plays. It's like da da. Mm. Now, when your man puts on the monocle, you kind of kind of snicker because like, he puts it on. He's got like that like the stupid look you'd have you know when you're looking at. You're him. trying to keep a monocle. In your <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> I can't wear monocles, you know. <laughs> um, but when Smite puts on the glasses, mm. there's a lot more malice to it. Oh yeah, and it. It, it, that adds to the old school fear that you'd get watching classic Who. I wonder if in the sixties, the feeling with the monocle would be different. Um, because for us in the twenty first century, no one wears monocles. Hmm. You know, I don't think that many people wore them in the sixties either. But. I wonder if it wouldn't have seemed as funny in the 60s as it appears now. Possibly not because... Because like everyone wears glasses. Yeah. So I'm wearing glasses right now. Yeah, it wouldn't be too far removed. Yeah, no, to your point, like in the 60s or the late 60s, monocles wouldn't be too far removed from a time that they were commonly worn. Hmm. Um, but now it probably is a bit more comical to look at. Yeah. Um, I still think though he looks like a bit of a twat. Oh, he does. <laughs> that he's trying to put on the monocle. And like uh, his sort of discount Blofeld scar yeah, down his yeah, eye. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, um, like it's like obviously in higher resolution images you can see the outline of the latex. Um, but no, like to his credit, the guy that plays Van Vyke is giving it socks. Oh, is yeah. But he is completely outshone in terms of threat and presence mm. 
by the uh, by the guy who plays Smythe. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, moving along, we have the security chief. No, I know that he has only appeared in one episode thus far, mm. but you can tell from this one episode he is going to be a massive thorn in everyone's side. Can I just say, so from the villains that we have, right? So yeah. Smythe, Van Vike, Security Chief, and the War Chief. Yeah, lots of chiefs. Nine of I like ones. him the most. As in, as a villain, I like him the most. Because mm. he's keeping shit from other villains, which I find very interesting. <laughs> oh, there is a huge cat and mouse game going on here. Like, he clearly doesn't work, trust the war chief at all. In fact, he's gathering all of this information for himself. And it's not just that he's not telling the war chief that information. It's the fact that he's lying about that information. And it's like, oh, like, what What are you, are you going to try and stage a coup? And, like, we'll get into it a bit with the war chief in terms of how how and why these people are working together. Um, But, like... I'm just like, ooh, he's playing he's playing his own game. What what's what what's his game? I want to know what that is. <laughs> like when I was watching it, I couldn't help be reminded by the comic relief special Curse of the Fatal Death, which is like, you know, he, like oh, I, I, I was I you know paid him to trap you. It was like, well naturally I anticipated your betrayal. So I in turn asked him to trap you. Well I anticipated your anticipation of my mission. <laughs> and it's like uh it, that's what it is. I'm it's saying like, it right now. At some point we have to do that in a rambling. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. because uh, it's fucking phenomenal. And but it's it, which is strange given our feelings for the writer. <laughs> um, yeah, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but like it's like this thing is like there is like there is going to be a virus and little finger. Oh yeah. Between like you know, kind of relationship between the two chiefs. And yeah. it's like the fact that he's storing information and that he does not trust him and that he is like in the ears of the other heads of the various departments about this. Like it's not just going to be a simple thing of the Cardis crew versus the war chief and all like these fucking assholes. It's going to have to be the TARDIS crew having to deal with the myriad plots of for power and mm. succession here in this yeah. thing. And I love that type of story. I love when there's multiple angles going on. Yeah. But what, what I love about him in it is the fact that so he's in, interrogating her, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But there's no sort of... He doesn't talk with the other guy that's in the room with him. He doesn't even care that the mm. other guy's there. Do you know? It's just this thing of... Huh. Okay. Yeah. So, like, there's no big sort of. Oh my god! She says she's a time traveler. Yeah. There's no big thing. It's just. Okay, I'm gonna file that away, and then the war chief comes in. He's like, "Oh yeah, she's from the 1917 zone." Yeah, as and it's like, it's like to play out the game and just to see exactly mm-hmm. where it leads. Um, no, no, he's very, he's very interesting. Yeah. Can't wait to see what where this leads. And I suppose now, oh yeah, you have a point. I was going to ask, do you find him intimidating? Oh, all right. I don't feel physically threatened by him, but hmm. around him, I am in fear of my life. Yeah, he's he's the kind of guy where it's like, you know, if you imagine you're one of our one of our heroes, mm-hmm. and you're captured. And you fa- find a way to 
fight off the war chief and you escape the guards. And you just sort of have this image of him just standing there going, ah, but we have your companions. And just this calm, cool, I know this stuff about you you didn't know I knew. And now I'm going to use it. Yeah. That that type of mentality can be very intimidating. All, I, all that's going to my head for some reason is Loche from Temple of Doom. What's that? Oh, it's the antidote for the poison you just drank. <laughs> um, but again, there's like, oh, it's just like, I hate these guys with aces in the hole. It's just like, oh, you're, you're fucking set me on edge, you know? But they're uh, so good to watch, though. They are, they are, absolutely. Um, so now we have the War Chief. The War Chief for me, hmm. and I know part of what is to come because I've seen the story before, but it was yeah. a long time ago. Time ago. So for me, currently, the war chief is a pile of questions. Yes. It's like, you're not one of these people, which we don't find out until quite a bit in, you know, that he's, his people are someone else. So you came to these people for a reason. What is it? What are you trying to learn here or build? And why does it concern you that the doctor is here? Hmm. Do you know? There's so many questions that... Like as a first time viewer of this story, if, particularly if you're watching these stories in order and you don't have a clue what's coming in the future, like you don't know anything about anything that comes after the story, the questions that must have been going through people's minds back in 1969, watching their telly, watching this guy going, who the fuck is he? How does he have TARDISes? How does, how does this work? Do you know? It's, like He's very interesting. Like I, there are certain things that I love that I try and mm. go back and when I watch it, I'm trying to pretend I'm watching it for the first time. Mm. And I, even though like I may know the outcome, it's like you know, it's like I'm trying to figure out like how the like where is this leading? How could this ending possibly have come about? You know, this type of stuff. Um, and it's like it's you can never fully take yourself out of it because you know what's called, because you know that there's something to look forward to. You know. Yeah. But I think because of this, because of the podcast, Classic Who is something I would love to be able to go back and watch for the very first time again. I would agree. And I kind of regret that when you were doing your run through originally, that I didn't watch it with you. Because we had some conversations like these at the time, but there were so many stories I didn't watch. Because of the way I got into the show and the way I wanted to watch it. I do kind of regret that we couldn't have these stories. We couldn't have these conversations rather 13 years ago. Although if we did, we wouldn't have a podcast. So, you know. Yeah, that's true. Uh, (laughs) And like as well, I wouldn't get like the kind of the enjoyment that I got from like seeing you like fall in love with uh, Bruce Cannon. Or your mm. new appreciation for the first Doctor, and like you know the the new iconic status you've given Ian and Barbara, and like all these other things, you know. Mm. Um, my un- my unending love for Bill Hartnell. Yes, exactly. I will defend that man till the day I die. Yeah. Uh, rather, I will defend that man's portrayal of the Doctor till the day I die. Yeah, cause I I was just about to say like yeah, cause, be a bit more specific. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, because like you know, one of those things, as we pointed out, if you were his friend, you were his friend. But if you weren't, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's not yeah. go down that route again. But um, yeah, no. But yeah, I think, I think something like the war chief and knowing what's coming, 
I kind of wish I didn't. Hmm. I wish I didn't know. But see, this this is the beauty of the war games, okay? Is that, like, there's an awful lot of indicators here to kind of go, like, you can kind of grasp what hmm. the revelation of his nature is going to be and why himself and the Doctor recognise each other. Right? Except, see... You don't, though, because how does he recognize the doctor? Yeah, <laughs> this is possibly a question for next week, and I just yeah, think I've broken you. No, no, you, ha- you like, no, that's actually, you know, that is a very good point to raise. Uh, maybe it might, it might be a question for next week yeah it might be a question for next week and we can discuss this we can discuss the point i was about to make next week um but no like you know, like in terms of like, there's so many questions here so many questions mm-hmm. and again i have to hand the or tip the hat to eric who plays yeah eric who plays the war chief the scene for himself and the doctor recognize each other edward sorry uh, there was a, I knew there was an E in there somewhere. Uh, where himself and the Doctor recognize each other. Mm. It's just fucking, oh, it's beautiful. It's mm. so good to watch. And there is legitimate, it's not fear, but it's concern. No. Because it's concern for what the Doctor's presence here means. Mm. There's one thing about him that did make me laugh, though. His when Man- I was writing my notes. His Fu Manchu, his disco outfit. No, <laughs> is I wrote down like you know oh he's really interesting he's like an enig- an enigma wrapped in a mystery mm. <laughs> wrapped in a riddle or whatever, but he's a man who keeps his own counsel. Mm. So much that the episode gives us a voiceover so we know what he's thinking. <laughs> There's I one re- scene where they just play his thoughts. I was like, okay, did you were you afraid he was doing such a good job at keeping his own counsel? <laughs> I love when they do these interior interior monologues because my mind just immediately goes to airplane. It's like you know, echo, echo, <laughs> now batting. <laughs> um, but I love the fact that he is aware that even though that he has like he's a special advisor and he has a certain amount of clout, mm. he recognizes that he has to be on his toes, especially oh, yeah. around the war chief or sorry, the security chief, and that's why I love like just like oh there's going to be so much conniving and backstabbing within the two of them I cannot <laughs> wait for it because okay watching it for the first time and re- and especially in reading it as well it oh it bugs the shit out of me and especially when it comes like Stephen King does this quite a lot with his villains it's like you think there's the upper hand and then they fail but then there's actually a fallout to their failure and it's like oh you oh I fucking hate it but upon finishing and reflection it's wonderful <laughs> Uh, so yeah I hate it but I love it <laughs> this is like Marmite <laughs> ew yeah I've never had Marmite but I know that that's the example that people give <laughs> so we've got some, we had some great discussions there's an awful lot of stuff left on okay is it tender hooks or tenter hooks? I've heard and seen it said and spelled both ways. I've always thought it was tender hooks. 
I don't know, but you're the same person who thought it was past mustard. So, um. yeah, exactly. That's why I'm coming to you now. And thanks for bringing up that shame. <laughs> I, Tenter I, hook. T e n t e r. I recently, I recently asked a question about a John Pertwee story. Uh, is it the demons or is it the demons? Because of the way mm. it's spelt. And you know, there was back and forth, back and forth. And one person suggested that, oh, how about we each, you know, take a stand on it. And you know, see which one of us is right. I'm like, I'm not about to go into a pronunciation fucking war with my co-host because she's got way too much shit on me. <laughs> yeah, but then, you know, you also have the fact that I didn't know the phrase thick as a ditch. Yeah, but... Because you're... I live in the city where there are no ditches. <laughs> so yeah. it never came up. Whereas I live in the country and there's nothing but ditches as far as the eye can see. Oh, what was the other one? That is maybe. Right, that's as I maybe. was convinced that that is maybe wasn't a real thing. Yeah. As I was going to say, it's be that as it may. But no, I, I, I later admitted I was wrong. That yeah. that is maybe. Is a, <laughs> uh, one of my very few victory dances. <laughs> so, as we said, at the, uh, at the probably at the top of the two hours, now I'm going to say this, at the top of the two hours, we're not going to score this particular part because there's a full story to come so we're going to give our thoughts on part one and then we will see you guys next week so what are your thoughts on part one i'm really liking the story so far i do not have as good a memory as you so you'll probably remember how much i liked the story the first time better than i will (laughs) well see this is the thing i watched the first six episodes with you yeah and then you were falling asleep, so uh, uh, I went home. Yeah, you went home, and then I then we watched the remaining four parts separately, or remaining four episodes separately. But I do remember that you were annoyed with the fact that you were tired and had to go home. Yeah, uh, did we watch this with another person? We did. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that will tell you. Those probably... in the know will know. Yeah. Those who don't, yeah. it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm really enjoying this story so far i am glad we're watching in two sets though because i got tired the first time when we were just watching it for enjoyment this time we're watching it and analyzing it to an extent you're making notes making observations you make way more than i do in terms of set (laughs) whatever um i wouldn't and i like to watch the episode in one sitting yeah to get the full story-based experience. I would not have been able to watch all 10 episodes in one go. It would have been very, very challenging for me to do that. So I'm glad we're watching two parts. And I'm glad the DVD allowed me to have a firm stop. Because otherwise I've had to get my ass off the couch and change the discs. And that's just effort. This is like watching the extended version of The Return of the King. Yeah. 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 Um, I think this story has a lot of things that the best Doctor Who stories do. It has great pacing. I mean, for five parts, you knew it was five parts, but you also didn't. How do I put it? When we got to the end of episode four, I was like, oh my God. And then episode five started. I was like, holy shit, that was only four? Brilliant. I still have another one. There's a phrase that I've heard recently and applied to certain things. And I've actually, I've started to kind of put it into my own head. And it's the phrase, there's not an ounce of fat on it. Mm. I would apply that to these five episodes. There is not a single ounce of fat. There's not a laggy moment. There's not a 
kind of uh, you're checking your watch type shit. No. None, of, none of that for these first five episodes. None no. of it. I would completely agree. Like I said, it has great pacing. It has a very intriguing mystery. Hmm. Because, like I said, it's you've got the mystery of the hypnotism. And then that expands out more to the time zones. And how does that work? And then it expands out more with this war chief thing. And then that expands out more again when the security chief drops the line that the war chief isn't one of their people. And you're like, it just keeps growing and growing. But not out of control. No, no. And there's so much more to come because obviously there's the overarch just there's the for lack of a better word, the Thanos of this whole story is the warlord. Yeah, who just gets name dropped and yeah. is whatever. So I think that's fantastic. The supporting cast were very good. Hmm. Um I think Oh, this is up there with Moonbase. Yeah, I, I was gonna say I think Moonbase Invasion, Web of Fear Seeds. Seeds, yeah, yeah. Definitely up there with that. Um, and it has while it doesn't have as big moments for our main cast as we would have had in previous stories mm-hmm. they do each have an acting moment at least mm-hmm. and I think they do each get a personal moment as well which is great everyone has something be it mm-hmm. core or guest cast be it yeah. hero or villain everyone has moments in these five episodes and like there's more to come we know that yeah. so like are, is everyone going to get that same stuff are we going to double down on the existing people like there's there's like so much that's going to like there's so much stuff to be answered and there's so much like <laughs> it's like an out of context line from the movie uh, Hellraiser we have such sights we have such sights to show you mm. that's what's coming up here next and I cannot wait. Like I watched this, right? And I, I remember messaging you kind of going, we're entering dangerous territory here because I'm tempted to really keep go, going. <laughs> keep going like past my fucking one a night rule. And I was like I was watching it to the extent of like, fuck it, let's just do all ten in one go. Like, like I, to be honest, like I was there last night, right? And I, I joked about oh I had to get my fat ass off the couch and, and change the disc, but like if only for the fact that like I had work this morning. Yeah. I may have tried it. Yeah. Do you know, I, I may have given it a go, but obviously I had to do my notes and I had to do whatever else for today. And so I was like, okay, I, you know, I won't, I won't, I won't risk it. But like, it's, it's very intriguing. And I'm hoping that the next five keeps up that. Like, if you think about the invasion, while, yeah, we had the Zoe, Jamie kind of trade off in terms of focus, the story kept us going. Yeah, over that long ago, the Daleks master plan. There was about two episodes of that that had definitely been trimmed. Yeah, and maybe a third one. So maybe that might have been a nine. Yeah, but, but this the core aspect of the story though kept you going, and it kept you slogging through episode seven or whatever it was. Kind of going, okay, hurry, fuck up an end so we can get back to the story. <laughs> And the beauty of it is, is the fact that it's like it's set in a fucking war zone where fronts and positions are constantly shifting. So therefore, our heroes are going to have to be constantly on the move. Mm. And look, there's an external force in play. There's ex- there's a power struggle within that exposing force. There's an awful lot of stories stuff here to be discussed that you're kind of going back and forth like a tennis match, but you're fucking hooked. Yeah. One thing I need to check. Give me a second there. I need to just look at something super quickly. 
So I know we're not going to do our scores till till next week. Yeah. But I just want to have a look in terms of... Where are you? So in terms of our final episode, final stories of a season. Mm. Reign of Terror. Great. Yeah. Time Meddler. Also very good. Yeah. War Machines. Eh. Middling. We, we, ha- we had issues with it, but it promised a it promised a new era. Yeah. Evil of the Daleks. Very great. good. Yeah, great. Wheel. Eh. Again, middling. Yeah. And now we have the war games. So in terms of next week when we're giving our overall score, it has some stories that we've ranked as some of our best. But also, just to call out in terms of will this be the season finale to get a five? No season finale has done it yet. No. They've got 4.5. Mm-hmm. That was rain. That was the highest. Will this beat rain and will it get a five? Yes. We'll have to wait until next week to see. So, guys, if you can wait that long, <laughs> join us. You don't us. have a choice. <laughs> yeah. You know, join us next week. But if you can't wait that long, but if you want to join in with our discussion, by all means, fucking track down uh, over BritBox or Hatrio Max or whatever streaming service has it. You can watch the war games and you can join us next week as we finish off part two. Bye. Bye. <laughs>